Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intensely and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, dear Lord, we do thank you for our brother Mark. We thank you for his service and dedication to you and to this church, especially over this past year plus. And we now ask that you would anoint him with your Holy Spirit as he brings the word to us. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to what you would have us learn and take away today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Renata. Good morning to you all, and so great to see everyone back in town again, to have a full meeting room here as we begin a new season, our fall season here at St. Paul Union Church. Uh, I'd like to share a wonderful answer to prayer that came on Friday, which uh, impacts me and many uh, others here in this country. Might not have heard about it. Uh, The U.S. State Department lifted the risk level from a three to a two in Turkey this week. Why is that significant? It means that in the United States now, universities and seminaries can now send students again to Turkey. Uh, Because of insurance reasons, uh, student groups were unable to come here now. So when your friends and family say, oh, it's so dangerous in Turkey, you can say, well, look at the State Department website at the same level as the UK, France, Germany, and Italy, okay? So they are level two risks as well. So 
This is uh, really important, and uh, for biblical faith tourism, uh, we look to a number of student groups visiting us again in the future now here at St. Paul Cultural Center and St. Paul Union Church, so very important. As Brian said, uh, today we're going to begin a series in First Peter called Aliens and Strangers, God's People in First Peter. So over the next coming seven Sundays, we're going to look at the characteristics of believers that Paul, or excuse me, Peter discusses in this letter. Our first one today picks up two of these. The church has a scattered and joyful people. And our devotional this week that uh, Amy contributed to our newsletter, I purposely picked it out. It was on the laughing dove. And if you remember what Amy wrote, she said, the laughing dove is a symbol of peace and joy. Okay, so perfect lead-in to our message today. In the opening verses here of this book that... Renato just read, Peter's introducing a number of themes that he's going to develop throughout the book, and one of those particularly is of suffering. But first of all, I want to introduce you to the recipients of the letter of 1 Peter. We're scattered in cities throughout several provinces in the Eastern Roman Empire. Then after that, we're going to look at some of the reasons why Peter says that these believers should be joyful. So we've got the PowerPoint up and running, and we're going to see some of the physical and spiritual location where Peter's audience was located, who they are, where they're at here at the beginning. You can see from this map, illustrating Acts chapter 2, where those had come from on the day of Pentecost that Peter was preaching to. And you'll notice that several of these places are located in Turkey. And several of them, two of them, in fact, are mentioned as part of the audience of our letter, Cappadocia, Cappadocia, and Pontus. So perhaps Peter and his audience there, as he testified about Jesus Christ, they might have been some of the first believers then to return to these areas in central and northern Turkey to be followers of Jesus Christ. Peter tells us his location. He says in chapter 5, she who is in Babylon sends you her greetings. And most interpreters say this is a symbol or a cipher for the city of Rome. The same thing we see in Revelation chapter 17. Mystery Babylon seated on seven hills. Babylon standing for the power of that day, the city of Rome. And Peter is located there. And he addresses the spiritual situation of his audience. He calls them the elect or chosen aliens of the dispersion. Now, here at the beginning, Peter is using very loaded language. As you know, dispersion, especially in a Jewish context, is talking about the exclusion, the sending away from the homeland, Eretz Israel. The first one takes place under the Assyrians. The second one under the Babylonians. And now many of the Jews living in the Roman Empire in the first century are living outside of Judea. Of the five or so million estimated 
Four million of these are living outside of Judea. So 80% of the Jews now are in the diaspora, the dispersion, and Jews, a part of this audience here, are living in Asia Minor, Anatolia. He repeats this term again in chapter 2, and he says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and aliens. Other translations suggest foreigners and exiles and sojourners. And the spiritual dimension of this is they're not just physically apart from their spiritual homeland, but there is an eternal homeland that they are separated from. And we learn about this in 1 Peter. And we see this very same language used of Abraham in Genesis 23, 4. I'm a stranger and alien among you. So the situation of Peter's audience then is very similar to that of Abraham, the patriarch, the founder of the Jewish nation. And their geographical location, notice Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And this idea of dispersion or diaspora we find in a number of texts in the Old Testament in Psalm 147, John 7, and the book of James is written to 12 tribes in the dispersion. So this idea of both physical and spiritual separation for the people of God is an important theme both in the Old and New Testaments. Now, when we talk about being exiles and aliens, this should be a concept that many of you are very familiar with. Let me ask the question of you. How many of you are from a passport country other than Turkey. <laughs> Is there anybody here <laughs> who's passed? Well, of course, we know ML. Anyone else here? Okay, we've got a couple of you. Okay, several of you. But the majority here this morning are in the diaspora. You're in the dispersion from your own home countries. And you know the cultural, the language, the various issues that all come from living in a place that is not your homeland. And Peter's audience was experiencing those same existential issues. So as we look at the location of these provinces, notice where they are in modern Turkey. Usually we talk about the seven churches. We talk about Paul's journeys. We're familiar with them, but we start thinking about the communities of Peter. This is a much more gray area. We don't often travel into this uh, area with tours, but it's a very rich area, as I'll show you in just a minute. And he says in chapter 5, I've written to you and sent this short letter with the help of Silvanus, Silas, whom I commend to you as a faithful brother. So Silas is probably the messenger now who is bringing the letter from Rome to these communities in Asia Minor. And most likely he came overland on the Appian Way, crossed over here to Dyrrachium and took this major road across the Balkans called the Via Ignatia, a distance of 1,120 kilometers here in the Via Ignatia from Rome to Byzantium, Constantinople, Istanbul, a distance of 1,786 kilometers. Now, as you know, today traveling in Turkey, even by bus or plane, not walking, which is how Silas is 
Now getting to these churches, these are important, are long distances. Those of you who have been to Istanbul across from the Hagia Sophia maybe have seen this golden mile. This stands at the very end, the milestone one or the beginning of this famous road in Turkey. And of course, the Golden Horn. And it's from this harbor then that Silas probably located a ship in order to begin his travels because the first place that's mentioned is Pontus. And the easiest way to get there is by water. On a sarcophagus in Sinope today, you see a very nice illustration of a boat, and this is probably how he traveled on his way along the southern coast of the Black Sea. And as he traveled, coming to Byzantium, making his way probably to the major city of Sinope, or modern Sinope. This is the northernmost point in Turkey today, as it was in the ancient world. Lovely city, part of the ancient walls, the Acropolis in modern Sinope. Forty years after Peter is writing this letter, we have our first secular historian writing about Christianity in Turkey. And that's an extremely important historical document. And this is by Pliny the Younger, excuse me, yeah, Pliny the Younger writing to the Emperor Trajan. And notice how he calls the spread of Christianity. This contagion of this superstition spread not only to cities, but to villages and farms. And this is having a social and religious impact that he says the temples are being deserted. The religious rites are being neglected. Sacrificial animals are not happening. So you can see within a generation of the gospel coming to these cities, the social and economic impact that Pliny is saying. And this is the first independent evidence of what worship among the early believers consisted of. They chanted verses in honor of Christ as if to a God, bound themselves by oaths, no criminal activities, abstaining from theft, robbery, adultery, no breach of trust. And then they dispersed to take ordinary food, the Eucharist that we took together last week. And this is Pliny describing what an early Christian worship service was like. Not a whole lot different from what we're doing here this morning, is it? Silas most likely made landfall here at Amasis, modern Samson, and the major north-south road that cut across Asia Minor uh, began here. And we know of a very famous Jew that Paul worked with in Corinth where they met by the name of Aquila, who was from a place called Pontus. So probably either from Sinope or from Samson, this was his home town. And Pliny talked about the whole issue of persecution that was going on at this time. He said to extract truth by torture, slave women whom they called deaconesses. And notice he calls Christianity a degenerate sort of cult carried to extravagant lengths. So this is the Christian faith as we worship today. Messenger would have traveled inland to the beautiful city today of Amasya, Uh, the ancient name being the same one today. And Pliny talked about apostasy, how they could induce people, notice, to 
uh, apostatize against Jesus, doing reverence to the statue of the emperor, the images of the gods, and reviling the name of Jesus. So as we talk about persecution in the book of 1 Peter, this is why they were persecuted. They refused to do these things. They refused to call the emperor Lord and God and to worship at their statues. So coming inland here, traveling down to Caesarea, modern Caesarea. Caesarea is the name of Caesar, Caesarea Caesar, through a city called Zile, crossing the longest river in Turkey, the ancient Halas, the Kuzul Ermak, and Cappadocia, and modern Caesarea today at the foot of Mount Argius, Ergius, duh. Traveling from Cappadocia now, he's come through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, back into Galatia to Ankara, the modern city, through Tavium and Ankara today. Basically the same name as in antiquity again. Westward to Pessinus, near Sidrihisar, and then coming through the northwest corner of the province of Asia into Bithynia. Today, uh, ancient Doralayim, modern Eskishahir, to Iznik, ancient Nicaea, one of the two major cities in Bithynia, coming to Nicomedia, ancient or modern Izmit, in the harbor there. Finally, ending the trip in Bithynia at Chalcedon, modern Kadikoi, on the eastern side of the Bosporus. Silas's Anatolian journey, 2,176 kilometers to make this rota, to visit the major cities which held churches here in the first century. His whole travel, including uh, coming from Rome with this, would be almost 6,000 kilometers by sea and land. So we're talking about a big commitment of relationships between these early churches and the communication that took place for this letter to happen. So we've seen a bit of the background then for the audience and geographical situation for the recipients of the book of 1 Peter. Let's consider now how Peter depicts God's people here in chapter 1. And three times Peter describes them as joyful. In verses 6 and 8, he says, they are to rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy in verse 8. So why are they to be joyful? Well, Peter gives five reasons for that. Number one, he said, we've received a new birth into a living hope in verse 3. Our old lives were characterized by bondage to sin. And after being born again through God's Spirit, we've received a new nature, a new way of thinking that is heavenly and not earthly. And we call this experience being born again, a new birth. Most of us can remember the time and place of our new birth in the kingdom of God. For Dindy and me, it was Mother's Day, May 12th, 1974. So if you're listening to this message this morning and don't know whether you've received a new birth, 
please pray with us after the service. We'd like to do that. So this experience of regeneration can occur in your life. Now, it's not necessary you know the precise date. Some of you have grown up in church, and it's just been a part of you. But for many of us, just like we know our date of birth, we can remember that date when God's new life came into our lives. And for you, who may have never experienced this new birth, which Peter is talking about, the 8th of September, September of 2019, could be that date for you. It would be forever the time when you knew that you were born again into the kingdom of God. In verse 4, Peter says, we've received an internal inheritance. I don't know if you've ever received an inheritance uh, earlier this year. I've notified that the estate of my mother or stepmother and father had been settled and the seven remaining children were all going to receive a share of that estate. And so it was a real blessing to get the money that came. And in fact, it helped pay for our recent trip to Sweden and Norway, which was a super blessing. But inheritance are spent on material things are soon gone. And unlike the earthly inheritances that we might receive that break, that rust, that rot, our heavenly inheritance is said to be imperishable, undefiled, unfading. As you know, in English, these prefixes indicate a negative. We use the im and the un to indicate a negative condition. And unlike an earthly inheritance that perishes, corrupts, and fades, ours in heaven will never do that. Amen. The third reason Peter gives for our joy is in verses 6 and 7. We receive trials to test our faith to purify us like gold. Now, I don't know how many of you rejoice when you're in trials. I certainly don't welcome that. But Peter says, this is a good thing. He compares our faith to the most precious metal on earth, gold. And for gold to be used, it must be refined. Trials refine our faith because we realize we cannot boast in our own strength. But praise, glory, and honor must go to the one who sustains us and carries us through them. So this morning, if you're going through a trial, it might be dealing with employment, finances, housing, health, whatever it might be. I know many of you are. We've been praying about those things. Think of it as a refining process that God may be involved in. Now, we can't blame everything on devil. The devil may or may not be involved uh, in this. And some trials are just the normal challenges of life. But what God is interested in is your response to these trials. James gives a similar perspective in chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy. Why? Because when we are weak, 
He is strong. Fourth reason, we receive the goal of our faith, salvation of our souls in verse 9. Our day-to-day focus, mine is, is on the activities of life, jobs, family, friends. All of these are important. But Peter is reminding us here that salvation encompasses more than just present life. It continues into eternal future that goes on forever and ever. And Christ's resurrection ensures that we'll also be resurrected when he returns at his second coming, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And the final reason that Peter gives is found in verses 10 through 12. We've received a gospel that was predicted by his prophets. So this message of Christ's death and suffering, that Pliny calls a superstition, a contagion, is not something new, but put part of what God has revealed to Israel's prophets hundreds of years before. The message of the cross, the suffering of Jesus, is rooted in prophetic history. And we know that the prophets didn't understand most of what the message that they were proclaiming was about. But they knew a future generation would hear and obey that message. And Peter says this is a message that even the angels would like more information about, but it's not, they're not the audience to which it's directed at. It's the believers in these five Roman provinces then and for us today. As you consider this morning these five reasons to be joyful as a child of God, remember the joy is not happiness. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is an emotion that can ebb and flow depending on circumstances, and we know that so very well. But joy is a fruit of the Spirit that God plants within us that carry us through the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs that come at us daily. Sometimes this may include suffering and trials. Yet joy sustains us because we know that God works all things for our good as we place our hope and trust in him. As we close, I'd like to tell just a brief story. During our time in Sweden, I was introduced to a book series by a Swedish author by the name of Willem Moberg. And in this series, Moberg tells the story of a Swedish family who emigrated from their home in Sweden to the American state of Minnesota. And I guess why this reading so resonates with me is it very much parallels the, own, the similar journey of my great-grandparents from Sweden to Minnesota in 1891. So I've been really fascinated as I've been reading Moberg's books. I'm on the third one here right now. I can't hardly put them down. But one of the characters in the books is a woman whose physical journey to Minnesota is told along with her spiritual journey. And when she's introduced in the book, her name is Ulrika the whore. No last name, just what she did, like Rahab the harlot. 
in the book of Joshua. We'll be studying about here in one of our upcoming lessons. Ulrika was the loose woman of the community who lured men into her bed. And of course, the men uh, were, had no part in resisting, you know. <laughs> they were complicit. And with whom she conceived four children out of wedlock, only one surviving childbirth. But as we follow her story, as she tells it, we learn this background of a woman who was shunned by everyone in the village, especially the women. She had been orphaned at the age of two and taken into care by a prominent family in the community. But when she reached the age of 14, one night, the master of the household entered her bedroom and raped her. And this continued through her teenage years in the home with the knowledge of the woman of the house. And for this, he paid her small sums of money. And now for Ulrika, the sexual act became associated with money, and she began to prostitute herself in order to survive. Yet Ulrika yearned for another life, and when a local minister, Daniel, began to share the gospel with her, she realized that another life was possible. In her new life, and she was among this group from the village that emigrated to Minnesota, she decided to be baptized now to signify her changed life. There's a lot in the story here I've had to leave out in the interest of time. But. And in a moving scene describing this coming event, Ulrika began to cry so violently that her whole body shook. And I quote Moborg now, from trembling lips she stammered, stammered. She was not sad, but happy. Her tears were tears of joy. When her tears at last gave out and Christina had never seen her cry, Ulrika told her friend why she had finally wept after all these years. It was because of God's all-forgiving love, which she had experienced through her husband-to-be. She had told him she was a great sinner, that she had lived in sin and shame in her homeland. She was a sister of the harlot in the Bible who had been brought to Jesus for judgment. Nevertheless, because of God's love, his all-forgiving love, Ulrika, the former whore, now wet her bridal linen with her tears. But only a person who has known what sin was could rightly understand her joy. She was like a bee. It had sweet honey in its mouth and a sharp, piercing sting in its end. First it lured a person with its honey sweetness, then it stung with its stinger. Sin had led her astray with its delightful sweetness, but how bitterly it had then stung her. Nothing in this world could sting such deep wounds as sin. Quickly, Ulrika dried the last tears with the corner of her apron. She had wept to her heart's content. Now joy overwhelmed her as she realized that the old had passed and that the new had come. Ulrika the whore was to become Mrs. Henry Jackson, wife of the Baptist minister of Stillwater, Minnesota. We sang earlier this wonderful song. His name is healer of your deepest scars, father of your broken heart. 
His name is mercy, power, freedom. Oh, his name, oh, his name. His name is Jesus. This morning, let joy overwhelm us as we too realize that the old has passed as well and that the new has come. That our identity, like Ulrich's, has been forever changed as we become the sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for Peter as he is writing to this audience. Lord, in the very same country in which we live. Lord, those are our spiritual forefathers and foremothers who lived in this place, Lord, who are part of our spiritual heritage in this land. We thank you for their witness. And thank you, Lord, that in spite of even much more challenging circumstances than we experience today, they held a deep, deep joy because they had experienced the healing touch of Jesus. Father, this morning, anyone today who is in that place, Lord, of needing a touch for whatever reason. Touch your people, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen.